Welcome back to season two of Legally Empowered. I'm your host, Sahara Pines, and I'm so excited to bring this podcast to you. As an attorney and former business owner myself, I'm passionate about drawing on my own experience and insight to set my female clients up for success. Lauren Imperato has become revered as one of the globe's top entrepreneurship experts. Lauren quit her job as VP of Morgan Stanley Fixed Income in 2009 to self-start IMU, a first-of-its-kind health, wellness, and fitness company. Lauren operated and scaled profitable digital brick-and-mortar and CPG verticals and wrote a multi-country best-selling book called Retox, named one of the hundred women in wellness and L's This Is 30, Lauren has been profiled in more than 500 media outlets, including CNN, Wall Street Journal, Vogue, Bloomberg, Fox Business, and has spoken all over the world. Her first blog was selected by Tumblr as one of the world's 15 best in the space and went viral twice. After 10 years, Lauren exited IMU and since advises a portfolio of companies on the nexus of business and brand strategies. She thrives on creating something out of nothing and turning back-of-the-napkin ideas into reality. Lauren additionally writes on Between the Waves, is a member of the board of Hear Me, a board advisor for Link, Lada, Aphrodite Health, Women in Innovation, and the Sunny Center Foundation. She is the Chief of Staff and Chief Branding Officer of Delphos Capital, a women-run impact investment group, and is the co-founder and CEO of The Association, a first-of-its-kind global leadership community of ambitious, extraordinary career women. Wow, that is incredible, and Lauren is just a force of nature. I'm so excited to welcome you to Legally Empowered. Welcome, Lauren. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I have been looking forward to this all week. Um, you have so many amazing things going on, but I just want you to take me back a little bit and tell me about your transition from the corporate world to the life of an entrepreneur. Yeah, you know, that transition is one that I never really actually thought would happen. I know I wanted to be an entrepreneur my whole life, but it was before entrepreneurialism in quotes was cool and trendy and on the cover <laughs> of every magazine and Netflix show. <laughs> Um, and you know, I was working at Wall on Wall Street and Morgan Stanley and fixed income, both New York and London, and had a great gig going. I became really passionate about something else, and that was health, wellness, fitness. I grew up in Northern California. I was always athletic, playing sports every day. My basketball team made us meditate before every game and after every practice. We eat salad with every meal, and there I was on the trading floor, just and, and in New York City at large, just kind of seeing a very unhealthy lifestyle. Really, rewind twenty plus years, twenty five years, the offerings weren't there, and I started getting into yoga and meditation and nutrition as sort of just a balance or a hobby. On the other side, I started teaching on the side, got all these certificates and blah blah blah, and on the weekends. I would turn the front of our loft into a yoga studio and teach free classes. And then during the day on the trading floor, I'd help all the traders trade their White Castle burgers, which just grossed me <laughs> out, or breakfast pizza was another thing that grossed me out, for like other basics. Not like starvation, not any sort of diet trend names that we use now, just other. Then I realized that there was no health and wellness industry the way it is now, or fitness industry. I quit to start IMU. The thing is that that day of quitting was like brutally scary. There was, uh -huh. you know, almost a decade of vested shares, effort and political capital in the firm at Morgan Stanley and, you know, your whole upbringing and, and education. And, and I had to take 
my heels out from under my desk for like two days in a row to like get them out <laughs> under my desk. <laughs> I know those days worked in New York City for a long time. <laughs> Were you nervous about the financial piece of it? Oh, I was so nervous. I, but I also knew that if I didn't do it then, either the health and wellness fitness industry was going to evolve without me or I would never do it. And I really saw this tiny gap of time where I could quit, leave a bunch of money behind and be flying and hanging in the loose. It's scary, but also work really hard, create a brand and a business. So when the industry exploded, it would be well positioned. And that's what happened. But it, honestly, quitting was the scariest day of my life. So tell me more. Did you plan ahead of time and sort of get some ducks in a row before you actually quit? Or you were like, okay, I'm done. And now I'm going to go. That's such a good question. So people like to think that I like hated my job on Wall Street and I quit and that was it. And I was over in the quote unquote toxic culture. I actually loved my job. Yeah. Trading floor is a good environment for me as an athlete. I had been for almost two years doing the things and teaching the things that turned into the business. I just wasn't charging money for them. So I had a two year plus actually in some sense, but two years at least of a studio running in the background. It was really like a Petri dish, a, you know, a lab to work on brands and wording and language, but I wasn't doing that. It was just my fun thing. And all during the work week, I would become obsessed with what I was going to teach on the weekend, what the music was going to be, what the anatomy was going to be, what the sweat factor. And so in many ways, yeah, I was prepared, but from deciding that I was going to quit, which was March. Actually, I was on the only other retreat I've ever been on as a client. I've led dozens, but been on. And I was like, oh my God, I have to do this. To April 15th, which is the day I quit. I think it was only one month. And I opened my doors with a launch party on May 1st. So that was like almost a six-week turnaround in which I definitely didn't sleep in those six weeks to get it out of the bat. But momentum is important to me as it is to every entrepreneur. And I don't like to just twiddle around. So I just sort of went for it once I quit. So I love that not only were you an entrepreneur before it was cool, but you had to side hustle before it was cool. Also, <laughs> yeah. I've just never heard about sort of those dual tracks. That's true. Day, yeah. I think. Dare I ask about your fitness routine now? Do you still have time <laughs> to for mental and health working out? Definitely. It's you know I always say that you wake up, you shower, you brush your teeth, you also drink water, okay. exercise. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Some days it's just too yeah. busy to brush your teeth. <laughs> One tooth. <laughs> so I mainly run, box, swim, play tennis, ski, but I definitely exercise every day. Yeah. It's been, it's been part of me since I was little. So, right. And what is your day job these days? I exited IMU after 10 years and now have a very uh, busy day job in which my co founder, Janelle Allier, and I founded the association. And the association is a women leadership organization with, across the United States and Europe at the moment, and soon entering into Asia and Latin America. And we curate your personal board of directors. So we curate groups of eight to 10 women geographically centered, and we create a system for you to meet with your board every month and follow sort of our recipe slash secret sauce for that monthly meeting and help you get ahead and tackle those amazing opportunities and challenges that every a career woman faces. How big is the association team right now? The team is five. I feel like we need 500. Right. <laughs> five. And Janelle and I each wear a lot of different hats. But that's kind of the joy for me of being an entrepreneur is, is wearing all those different hats. It allows you to never get bored. We are live in New York, LA, London, Madrid, Miami, Boston, the Bay Area, and launching this quarter in Seattle, DC, Texas, and Chicago. 
I know I left out another city that we're live in, but where we're growing both horizontally across the nation and deep with various groups in each of those cities as well. So who has time to work out? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if I didn't work out, my partner would be way more stressed about me and not me about her. <laughs> and you guys are working across multiple time zones, right? I yes. know Janelle is uh, out in Spain as Madrid, right? Well, we have some of our team in Pacific time, some of our team in East Coast time, some of our team in Madrid and Europe. And so, yeah, we were cross time zones. You know, it seems to be sort of in the East Coast, you're kind of always slammed in the middle, um, but it works really well. And we believe in that flexibility. Yeah. So what are your current biggest challenges? I mean, what keeps you up at night other than calls with your partner? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the biggest challenge is quite frankly demand. A lot of women want their personal board of directors, which is incredible. But before we create a board for every woman out there, we have to interview them, vet them. We use a combination of data science and a personal touch to create these boards. So there's a leadership questionnaire women take. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And it's a lot of logistics, quite frankly, and hands-on logistics. We don't just chuck a bunch of women together. We really think about how they would fit together and is there diversity thought in that group. So logistics, believe it or not, which is not something that I thought a lot about it before entering this business, definitely keeps me up at well, night. It's so hands-on, right? And right now, are you and Janelle pretty much hand-matching? It's almost like a matchmaking business, right? It is. We have a committee. So we take candidates when they've been in, once they've been interviewed and provided their data science leadership test. And then once our team meets upon them, we take them to committee. And as a committee, we decide sort of accepted or not accepted. And then once we hands-on curate a group, we can go back to that same committee and say, listen, this is the group we're thinking about. We have not taken as a company, we have not taken outside investment because we don't want to have to report to investors about how many groups we're launching a quarter. We care so much more about quality than quantity. And that's another thing that keeps me up at night is that, that as I just mentioned, that demand is there from women, but we can only launch groups so fast. Um, right. Because we don't have to report that we launched 10 groups this quarter and five groups that quarter and 100 groups the next quarter, we have that luxury to really deliver a quality product. And what about your marketing plan and branding aspect of things, which is certainly not an area of my expertise, but it would seem that this has got to be a huge personal referral type business. Yeah, you know, branding and marketing, I actually love. I have no technical background in it, but I realize I've been doing it my whole life. I believe, as I did with IMU, that for a company to last and for a brand to really last, I think it really should come from the founders that brand and that voice, you know, otherwise you outsource it to another company. And for us, it comes from what we thought was missing yeah. in our life, you know, and that's, what's resonating. Yeah, and that's what's resonating with women. We are going word of mouth though. That's the way I built my last business, which was sold out and oversubscribed for a decade. And so we're going over word of mouth for this as well. Great. What advice would you give to your younger self? Let's say going back to when you started IMU. <laughs> Try and be more patient. <laughs> I am inherently a very impatient person and there's this thing, there's an entrepreneurial thing if you have it like momentum and like it's a dopamine adrenaline trade-off at all times and you know that momentum's critical, but also sometimes that's how things take longer to gestate. I don't know if that's the right word, but to, you know, to really come to fruition and not panicking in a time when something hasn't turned around in a second, I think would have probably saved me a lot of agony in the first years of IMU and something that I'm really trying to bring into the association. No, that makes sense. I mean, you seem just so grounded with so much going on. I know you're involved in impact investing. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing in that space? Absolutely. I am the chief of staff and chief branding officer for Delphos, 
Delphos is an impact investing group focused on emerging markets. So what we do is we finance and we orchestrate impact deals focused on climate transition and infrastructure in Africa, Latin America, and EMEA, which is Eastern Europe and Asia. We look at those countries, those populations, those societies, and we here in the States, we're constantly yammering on about ESG, impact, DEI, all really important things. But the majority of the planet really needs those, you know? Like these third world countries, these emerging countries need broadband. They need hospitals. They need other sources of energy besides burning the plastic. You know, in Kazakhstan, they burn so much plastic just from wrappers to try and keep themselves warm. And so we're at Delphos are really trying to attack this problem in a way that nobody else is. Have you successfully funded any projects? Oh, yes. So Delphos is been around for over 33 years. It's wow. a boutique investment bank focused on these projects. And now we are going for a fundraise for the larger part so that we can get involved hands-on in financing them as well. And what kind of data are you seeing from like the most successful projects? You know, data is such a phrase that I feel like we use so much in, in society today. And I like to talk about quantitative data, but also qualitative data. Mm -hmm. I think we, t we tend to forget about qualitative data, which is actually the, the crux of living and success in my mind. You know, so we're just seeing, you know, when you put a solar plant in Ecuador, many more people have energy in their homes. Or if we put a road in Cambodia, many more people can get to and from work or the crops are transported with less damage to and from, from the farm to the, to the next step. And these things really have a huge impact on socioeconomic growth and prosperity for the, the people on the ground. And then everybody tangentially involved as well, both in the countries and outside of the countries. And is Delphos primarily women-funded? So it's women helping It's women-led. It's a women-led company. So there's men, but it's, it's one of the first, if not only, women-led organizations focusing on impact in emerging markets. I love that. We were at an association breakfast, as I mentioned, for our LA group yesterday. And one of the women said, the great thing about this group is that it was started for women to help each other. And in sort of the general population, there's this mentality that women don't help other women. What's your response to that? And, and what do you have? How blunt do you want me to be? <laughs> as blunt as you want to be. Of course, I'm not like that. And you're obviously not like that. So the, the second somebody asked me for help, I'm you know running around the block trying to help them. So it took me a minute. I actually do not think that women tend to help women. I think it's a lot of BS and fanfare and, you know, pink hats and memes and whatnot. I think the majority of women don't help other women. I've been on the side of that the majority of my life, which is why I needed to start the association and why I wanted to get involved with Delphos. Now, I don't quite understand why it has to be that way. You know, when I am talking to a guy and uh, the guy says, hey, wait, let me connect you with Jane and she could probably help you out within a day, sometimes they forget, but within a week, I'll have that connection email done. 90% of our members of the association have had similar negative experiences with other women. You know, so I know it's not just me talking, it seems to be a trend. And, and I, I don't know if it's that, well, there's a lot of studies about this and I actually wrote a paper on this. I call it woman versus woman. So plural versus the singular. And my theory is that, okay, the rest of the world thinks it's the queen bee, you know, I need to be at the top or women have struggled so hard and there are less spots. So they're edging people out. I actually think women just need to hold more true to their word, just be able to be direct. And if they don't want to help somebody out, say, you know what, it's not the right time for me uh -huh. to do that intro. That's what a guy does. 
But here as women, we're asked, or we think we always have to be nice. We think we, or we're asked to always be friendly with other women. And we're implicitly being told through these asks that competition is not for women. In fact, we would not be alive as a species if we weren't competitive. Men are encouraged to go out there and be competitive. Even just look for baby clothes and kids' clothes, sports, trophies, all these prints on them, right? Woman is all theoretical. It's unicorns and rainbows and all this other stuff. We're supposed to be docile. We're not supposed to compete. So then when you put two women in a room together, women are pretending that they're not competitive when in reality, they're just going against their nature and holding the entire gender back. That's an important perspective. So how do we- Not one everybody likes to hear, I'd like to say. You know, I've definitely gotten- a little times for saying it, but it's been my experience and 90% of our members, which are based across the world, across industries. So I know I'm not alone here. Mm-hmm. So how is the association changing things for the better in that regard? What we do in creating our board of directors is we look across industry and cross level. Unlike other women's groups out there, which tend to be echo chambers, meaning they're either C-suites or they're women in finance, women in law, women in the arts, whatever it is, we have philanthropists, lawyers, doctors, entrepreneurs, techies. I mean, you name it, we have that gamut. And what each woman brings to the table on their board is their experience. And the experience of a doctor is in no way directly similar to the experience of a lawyer. But you might, what we're finding across the globe is that women face the same problems and the same challenges. They just attack them differently because of their experiences and their expertise in a particular field. So by bringing a group with what we call diversity of thought together, we can help other women create their own path to success without advice being given, without saying you should do this, or I would have done that, or without any snarkiness or passive aggressiveness. It's just here, I'm a doctor. This is what I do. I'm a lawyer. This is what I do. I'm a philanthropist. This is what I do. And then suddenly the techie is like, oh my God, I should do this. And they take that input and create something new for themselves. Right. Where you can take away sort of what you hear. Everybody hears things differently or everybody resonates with something differently. So just hearing the, as you called it, diversity of thought and and taking away shared experiences or here's what I did or here's what this reminds me of, I know has been very informative for, for my own professional growth for sure. So I appreciate you guys. That's great to hear. Yes. Yeah, so you are writing some books. What's next? When I exited IMU in 2019, and before I met my co-founder, I started the association, it felt like years and years of an endless, hopeless transition of what do I want to do next? And in that period, I really realized that there's not a lot of literature out there on transitions. There's a lot of like self-helpy type stuff. And there's a lot of like, if you're in your business, how do you do a pivot? But career transition or life transition is brutal. It sucks. I woke up like dreaming of wine and went to bed dreaming of coffee. And like, I was just a mess. I was like, God, what have I done with my life? Even though the exit's the best thing I ever did, I was a mess. And I think it's because as a driven person, suddenly you're in this gray space, you know? And I've always had a non-linear career. And I was actually quite jealous of my friends that had completely linear careers. So the first time I was like jealous of my friend who's a lawyer or, you know, my other friend who's a bank. I'm like, they never have to think. They just jumped to the other bank. You know, here I was with a lot of optionality, but I didn't see it that way. I saw it as like the worst of the worst of the worst that I chose, by the way, in exiting the company, but the worst. So this book, Between the Waves, is an exploration of how you really can manage transition in a realistic way without being self-helpy and without being like a doctrine, executive coach doctrine. 
Okay, well, I'm going to have to check that out. So if you need a free reader, I am here for you, Lauren. Thank you so much. <laughs> I just want to close with, you know, what are you most looking forward to over the, the next year, whether it be personal or in your professional life? That's a big question. I mean, I love life. So I feel like I'm always just looking forward to, to life itself, you know, the, the little things. And I think that the little things are the things that I'm really looking forward to, whether that is a surprise visit by a family member or that perfect summer day with an Aperol spritz um, on the beach, whatever that is. I think that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to have like the must do or the do's to feel happy. And I, you know, particularly having gone through that transition and now starting my second company and working with Delphos, you know, things come when they're supposed to come and it's agonizing and as it is when you're in a transition or not in a great place when everybody tells you, don't worry, be patient. It's going to be great. You're like, oh my God, what don't you understand about life? Actually, it's true. So I'm just really looking forward to growing the association, getting as board of directors for every woman out there and continuing this journey, no matter where it takes me, because it seems to be that I never know. And it seems to arrive on my lap. So that's right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was so great to know you. And I look forward to seeing all the amazing things that you've accomplished. Likewise, thank you so much for having me.